Master Cave in on Powered Trinity. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda. Today we have Sonia Martin with us. She is with Lifeline and we were talking before the recording and I would normally give a big long intro and all that good stuff, but I think she has more important things to say than I do. How are you doing today, Sonia? I'm great. Thanks so much. I don't know if I have anything important, but we'll see what happens. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, just talking a little bit beforehand to know that that not only do you work with kids who need help, which is such an important thing, so many kids need so much help in this world, but that you also have some experience in the foster care and adoption area as well. So many people don't understand that, where it comes from, what it means, what it feels like as a parent. And it's really challenging for people to explain that to others. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you hit it right on the head is that I think when you can interact and find some practitioners that can walk alongside you through this foster care journey, adoption journey, just this road of brokenness that we walk with these children in, it is infinitely valuable. I think it is one thing to know about trauma on an intellectual lens for sure. And I think it's a whole other thing when it sits at your dining room table every night. So (laughs) the fact that I kind of do this professionally and personally, hopefully it's just you know, a benefit to the families that we work with. But yeah, so I'm the director of Central Alabama for Lifeline Children's Services. We are an orphan care ministry that does a variety of work, both internationally and domestically in the field of foster care, adoption, church partnerships. And we have quite a few ministry partners worldwide as well. All right. Wow. And you've also got some real personal experience in the adoption world. I do. So I have seven boys. that just keep my grocery bill rather high every day, every day. Uh, They are 16, 16, 16, 18, 18, 22, 23 now. So all in the process of launching and leaving and starting college, graduating from college, finishing out high school. They're all over the place. I feel a bit like an air traffic controller these days where my parenting role is much less um, intensive and more so about just making sure the planes run on time and nobody crashes into one another. So it's a, it's a fun time. If anybody needs a grilled cheese, you know, while we're talking here, I can, you know, whip one up for you. So <laughs> you just let me know. Well, you know, you throw all those ages out there. My first thought is it sounds like you're setting up some lottery numbers there. And then my second thought is, wait a second, there was three 16s in there. Yeah, so I have my youngest three were all adopted internationally. They were seven years old, turning eight at the time of adoption. So they are all 16 now. They all have special needs. Uh, One of them was actually born with a pretty significant heart defect. And I thought I was bringing home a dying child. (laughs) He um, was terminal or so his file had said. His um, in-country doctors and orphanage staff had certainly done what they could do, you know, had sent him to some specialists and gave it certainly a valiant effort, but were ultimately just told that he was hopeless, uh, that his case was hopeless, that he would not have that much longer to live. Um, There was quite a big advocacy movement to kind of try and find him a family in quite quickly just because he was so sick. And I had just gotten back home with my other two 
seven turning eight-year-olds, um, both adopted internationally as well when I found out about Joshua. And, you know, that thought of that child dying alone in an orphanage just did not compute in my head. So jumped right back into the process and both countries actually ended up expediting his adoption because he was so sick. So from start to finish, she was home in about four and a half months, landed in America and went right into the ICU. So who knows, his story has just taken such a turn and he is such a gift and I am ever, ever grateful for the life that God has given him. I can't even imagine because bringing home a kid from now you they're from from China, right? They are. Yeah. Bringing a kid halfway across the world who's a terminal case. Uh, I mean, you know, and, and for listeners who've, who've listened to our podcast very long, you know, my wife and I lost our oldest daughter five years ago to a nasty disease. And, you know, that that's a terrible thing. I cannot imagine. I just can't imagine what it's like to bring a child into your home who you expect to be a terminal case. What was going through your head through that? That had to be a hard moment. You know, interestingly, and whether it was my own naivete or just my, um, you know, partly driven by the compulsion from the Lord to understand that his life has worth, his life has value. And if I was going to have three weeks with him, then man, I was going to make it a great three weeks. And if I was going to have three months with him, then it was going to be a great three months. But heck, if that kid was going to die alone, sitting in an orphanage, just could not make sense of that. Um, So yeah, it was definitely something that you both jump into because there's a need right in front of you. Yet there is certainly that voice in the back of your head or that outward voice, frankly, from doctors and people in community with you. I'll never forget. I had sent his file to one of the top pediatric cardiac hospitals in the nation just for them to take a look at. This was when I was in process for him and he had not yet back arrived here in the States. And the doctor called me super nice guy. Um, but he said directly to me, I'll never forget. He said, do you realize what you're doing? He said, I don't think I'm going to have any interventions to offer him. And I just need you to understand what it is you're walking into. And I said, you know, thank you. I appreciate that. And then kind of shared with him where I was coming from with it. But I think that that's the worldly perception, right? Is he's dying. Why? Why? Why would you go? Why would you expend that energy and effort and expense and process on a child that likely was not going to be with you very long? And I think the challenge of that mindset is so incredibly critical because he does have value. He does have worth. His life is meaningful. And certainly with Joshua's story, um, his death was actually not what the Lord had for him. So surprisingly, he, after landing in the States and being in the hospital, about 48 hours later, they had done a heart cath and walked in. And I'll never forget, the guy walked in, kind of threw his hands up and said, this is a miracle. I've never seen a kid survive this defect this long, completely unrepaired, which is not too terribly surprising, right? Because if he had born in, been born in the States, he would have um, had surgery likely within hours, if not a day or so after birth. So the fact that he was seven and a half years old, still alive with this defect was quite the spectacle. I think we saw every doctor, every nurse, every intern, every med student, everybody came by <laughs> to say hi to Joshua So sure enough, they cleared the OR schedule that next day and operated, and he rolled right back up into that ICU room pink. He went from blue to pink within a matter of about a 16-hour surgery. So we're thrilled at the results. Oh, wow. 
<laughs> wow. That's just, that's, you know, I'm of the opinion now that from some of the things I've seen in life, that if it's not your time, it doesn't matter what's happening in the world around you. You know, if God has a plan for you, it's, you're, you're just not going to be able to get away from it. And, uh, so true. Yeah. So true. <laughs> yeah. Life, life sometimes is just that way and we don't understand it. Um, now I, I know you mentioned you had two, seven turning eight year old boys coming in. And as I remember kids in that age, they're still pretty easy going they're, They want a mom and dad to like them. They're happy. They're easy to get along with all that sort of stuff. But I also happen to know what happens here in just a few years after that moment, because I've had some preteens, mm-hmm. you know, uh, did you guys struggle through those preteen years, especially around the, the fact that kids are adopted? Because we, we have that in our own home. We have lots of kids who go through that and it's some added struggles for a lot of kids. Did they get walk through that without a whole lot of extra struggle or did that take some, some work through the trauma of, of having lost their first family? Yeah. And you know, and that's the, that's the important thing to remember, right? What you just said, that they have lost their first family, that they, yes, are seven and a half year old boys, but as we all know, and let us never forget that their foundations are very, very different from our biological children. Um, that trauma, that brokenness, the effects of institutionalization, the effects of early neglect and maltreatment have a very real, a very lasting effect in these kids' lives. And I think to both honor that while at the same time not treating them as a victim is incredibly, incredibly important. Um, Certainly when you are in an institution, typically we see kids respond in one of two ways. Either they will dog eat dog, right? Get your needs met. (laughs) Doesn't matter who you have to push over. Doesn't matter what technique you need to use, right? You get your food, you get fed, you take care of you. And it's respectable, right? Because they're trying to survive. They are trying to make it through the next day. Conversely, the other ways that we see a lot of these kids from institutions get their needs met is to play the victim. So, you know, let's bat our eyes, let's appear helpless. And that tends to evoke some empathy on behalf of the staff sometimes. And that is yet another tactic that they can use to get those needs. In my situation, when I adopted two at the same time, I had one dog-eat-dog personality and one victim personality. And the fact that they had had a pre-existing relationship, I thought, innocently enough, would be a benefit to them coming over together. I certainly thought, well, they'll have some familiarity with one another. They will have this friendship together. They've been together their whole lives. This will be nothing but beneficial to them which is all well and good, except when you try to insert your parental self in the middle of a pre-existing relationship that had an unhealthy power dynamic between the two of them, it is incredibly difficult. So I needed one of them to throttle back and realize he didn't have to fight for food. He didn't have to fight to get his needs met. I was here. It was going to happen. He's okay. And I needed the other one to kind of start to stand up on his own two feet to find his voice. Because all of that is needed, right, for that growth and healthy development as they age and as they proceed across the lifespan. But the actual day-to-day logistics of parenting, that power dynamic was incredible incredibly challenging in those early years. I will say now all three of them are 16. We are at the point with the family unit that they feel grounded and systemically a part of this family. So will that trauma always be a part of them? Yes. 
do I see it manifest day to day like I did in the beginning? No, it's much more kind of, quote, normalized now to their same age peers. But nonetheless, I think honoring and respecting their history and their story will just always be a part of our relationship. Yeah, now it's gone to just dog eat everything because they're teenage boys, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, that that's that's wow. That that's quite a lot of of struggles you went through. I'm certain because you know, we we've also experienced some of that as well. You know, our uh, our oldest adopted is about to turn 15, going on 35. But I totally understand what you're saying about that. You know, bringing that power dynamic between kids into a home. And then trying to to put your positional authority to to work because positional authority tends not to work, I found. <laughs> Absolutely. And interestingly, just clinically and professionally, as I work with families who have adopted kids at older ages, so let's say post-puberty, anytime from the age of about 12 onward, their challenges will look very different. Their challenges will be magnified simply based on the age and stage of development of these children. If we think about children in the age of puberty, in adolescence, this is a time in their growth and development where the Lord has created them to prepare to pull away from that mother and father figure and start to launch out into the world. And that is great and healthy. And we love that. The problem is when you then adopt a child, especially internationally during that phase of life, you are trying for the very first time to get this child to submit to some parental authority to be under your headship, to be under your guidance when they have never, never been in that position before. They do not have a context or a construct through which to understand how a family unit works. And so is it doable? Absolutely yes. Are their lives worthy of redemption and families? Absolutely yes. Um, But the fact that parents need to understand and respect the phase of development that that child is in relative to their adoption or, frankly, domestically with adolescents in foster care, much the same principles would apply. It's just something that we've got to be consistently and constantly aware of. And that's mainly because a lot of that adolescent nonsense, as I like to refer to it, um, you know, is very, very challenging and on its surface and face-to-face value just comes off as flat-out disobedience. It comes off as flat-out disrespect. I'm not doing what you tell me to do. You can't make me do what you want me to do. Well, yes, and we need to kind of right that ship a little bit, but it's the way that we do it through that therapeutic connected approach. And we've also found about, you know, the preteen age and and with our children, they're also starting to explore who they are and who their first families were and how that, you know, relates to who they are and who they're going to become as people. And so we've found that, you know, that can be a little trying too, is trying to navigate those waters with bio families and trying to reconnect. And is it safe to do so, you know, and the benefits and the risks to our children, For sure. And there's so many, as you guys well know, so many variables that will kind of guide that process for you as the parents or as the foster parents or as the adoptive parents. Uh, When I work with families, sometimes when we're talking about this birth family um, part of it specifically, I tend to illustrate it like this. I say, let's say, for example, that you have a child come to you from the hospital. 
from day one, I want you to picture that you've got a blank coloring book page. And this coloring book page has the outline of some sort of graphic or some sort of beautiful picture, but it is completely not colored in. Your job as the parent, as the foster parent, as the adoptive parent, whatever the case may be, your job is to slowly start coloring in that coloring book page little by little, day by day, so much so that that page is fully covered in by about the age of 12. We need these kids to know every last ugly, awful, beautiful, fantastic, redemptive, horrific part of their story in its entirety before they then launch into adolescence. And what that does is it helps to kind of tamper exactly what you're talking about. We don't want them in that period of adolescence to still have all these questions of where did I come from? Who's my biological father? Why did my mother end up in jail? Um, why am I in foster care? Why on earth did you have to adopt me, right? What is my story? Children need to know who they are and whose they are at a very basic fundamental level before they launch into adolescence. I cannot underscore enough how vitally important that is for that period of life to be successful because when there are holes in their story or when there are parts of it that nobody's ever spoken into, trust me, they will go try to find it out, right? This is where we see kids start to reach out, whether it be on social media or whether it be in direct physical contact. Um, some cases that may be safe, but you know, in the world that we all live in, a lot of times that's not necessarily safe. And we want them to do that in partnership with you. And so really equipping and informing and empowering them with their own history is vital. Not your job to make it pretty, not your job to put a bow on it. It is simply your job to present it to them. Their story is their story. Their truth is their truth. So for the parents who might not have necessarily done that before adolescence got there, you know, how would you work with a kid who maybe has, has made it through adolescence, who has not had those pieces of their story brought to them already, who has those holes missing? What's the, the, the second best way, I guess, if you did, if you didn't accomplish that the first time, because I know a lot of parents didn't. And, and if you go back across history, that that's been a story that a lot of, a lot of the stories of, of adoption have involved a lot of secrecy. Everything's put away. If you look at the way the modern ad adoption system is set up, so many people, uh, you know, search for that. I, I'm on a few groups and I'm looking at some Reddit threads and things like that. So many adoptees as adults, still have a lot of hate and anger and vitriol just due to the fact that they were never given those pieces of their life. They feel like that was stripped from them. So if you have some kids who are maybe just past that, that you're still trying to raise, where could the listeners go to like to work with them? What, what do you do to help build that at this point in their life? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say as the adoptive parents, as the foster parents, it is your job to be the best private investigator that you can be. Um, certainly, we have enormous tools at our disposal these days. You need to be looking for these relatives, extended family, bio parents on Facebook, on Instagram, Google them, find photos that you can find, find as much information as you can find. If all you can find is the mugshot, that's what you have. But to your point, a lot of times when we see these 
older adoptees, for example, on Facebook, and let's say the ones where they're holding this sign and they're saying things like, you know, I was adopted on this day. You know, this was the hospital I was born in. I'm searching for my biological mother. That illustrates my point. These adoptees are now 40, 50, 60 years old, and they still want to know. They still need to know. So instead of trying to take a posture of protecting our children by not exposing them to the brokenness and to the hardship that brought them into care in the first place, what we've actually got to do is invert that approach and really find the information help them find the information, walk alongside them with this. Because like I said, their truth is their truth. It's not our job to change it or try to you know, manipulate it or narrate their story in a way that's more palatable. Our job is to present the truth. And so by seeking out that information, whether it be online, through social media, through court records, in whatever way you can, you are actually giving your child a gift. As hard as that is to be able to have to sit down with them and say, you know, baby girl, I just wanted to share with you, you know, what I found. Now, granted, please do understand with that coloring book analogy, we are disclosing and presenting information in an age appropriate way. When the child is, you know, three, we're going to do things like making sure that we're reading books, you know, that we have sort of an adoption children's library, so to speak, in our home where we've got 5, 10, 15 adoption-centered books about the bunny who was adopted by the rabbit family, or that would be the same animal, (laughs) the bunny who was adopted by the owl family, let's say. Um, We want to be using that language. We want to be saying the word adoption. We want to be saying the word foster care. When they're watching movies, you know, we want to point out characters and stories that share a similar history to them. Oh, wow. Dude, check it out. Kung Fu Panda was adopted by the crane just like you were adopted. And then we're moving on. We're just sort of constantly speaking this language into their life so that it doesn't catch them so quite off guard. This isn't a matter of old school approach where you don't tell them that they're adopted. And then you just kind of sit them down one day if you have to. You know, it's, it's very much disclosure little by little by little that fits their age and stage of development. So do we tell the five-year-old that mama, you know, has been in jail for quite a few years for drug possession and, you know, here's what heroin will do to your body and your brain? No. Can we have that discussion and that piece of the puzzle when the child is 10, 11, 12, 13, absolutely yes. So it's just vitally important that we understand, number one, the story. We've got to get our hands around the information. We've got to get our hands on the photographs and we can kind of keep it in a file and we're working with this child little by little to help them understand the foundation of where they've come from. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. We actually have almost exactly the story you just mentioned, and we've been able to have that conversation with with our little guy about, you know, hey, you know, mom had some addiction struggles, and, and mom was sick, and she, you know, she couldn't take care of that, and that's why you're here. And we're the only family he's ever known. He came to us at at right at a year old, and so he's been with us ever since then. He has no memories of, of before that. He was also. But, um, but, uh, yeah, he was, he was part of our life before that. Yeah. I mean, he was relative. So the first year he spent a lot of time with us anyway. So he was very, very familiar with us. 
but yeah, he, he has a story and, you know, even at, you know, he's just six years old, but he knows, you know, that he has another mommy, another daddy. And, you know, we try to work those things in because it is so vitally important that our children know where they come from. That is part of their identity and part of their self-worth and to rob them from that is, it's not a good thing at all. Well, and in full disclosure, we learned that lesson the hard way. Our oldest son was, uh, he was technically speaking my stepson and there was really no, no disclosure point because when I came into his life, he was very young. He never knew anything different. And his biological dad had just kind of walked away. And I happened to walk into the picture about that time. And it was just what it was. He started calling me dad. I didn't argue with him. And that led to a difficult moment here less than a year ago. He's 21 now. Yeah. Yeah. He's 21. (laughs) Yeah. No, I don't know. He's old, (laughs) but we just recently got a phone call about a year ago and he said, Hey, I just got a strange message from somebody. And um, he says he's on ancestry.com and I'm a stepbrother. And it brought about a real hard conversation that we probably should have had a lot of years before, but what had happened is over the years, we'd had these moments and we thought we should have this conversation now. You know, we should really tell him about this. And then some big trauma would come up. Some big struggle would come up. He'd be in a developmental phase that that really didn't lend itself towards him being in a struggling place. So with our younger kids, one of the things we learned was from day one, we just talk about the fact that this is truth because he had to experience that at a much older age. Yeah. And I love that. And certainly one of the most practical things you can do is use what's called a life book. Um, You know, I think we tend to get too caught up in that title and picture that we've got to go buy all the scrapbook materials and the very pretty sparkly stickers and paper shaped like flowers. Um, Life books do not need to be anything fancy. You can truly, truly go to Walmart and get a 45 cent spiral bound notebook. I don't care what you do, but create some sort of tangible concrete book that this child can reference. And what I tell families that I work with is to construct it somewhat in this manner. On that front cover, you want a picture of your family, meaning all of you and this child and their siblings, that is their family. And that's the picture we're going to have on the cover. And right underneath it, we're going to give it some language and we're going to say, my family. Then you're going to flip that open and you should have a picture of yourself, the father in the family and whatever he calls you underneath, whether that's daddy, dada, papa, whatever it is, that's going to be notated on there. Same thing with the mother. This is my mommy. This is my mama, whatever it is. And a picture of this child. And we just kind of walk through whoever their adopted family is. And then following that, as we continue to flip those pages, when we can track down some photographs of birth parents, um, extraneous relatives, whoever it is, we're going to add those to the life book. And it doesn't matter to me clinically or professionally, whether you refer to this child's birth mom as birth mom, whether you call her biological mother, whether you call her biological mama, it doesn't matter. Just pick one phrase though, and stick with that. What we don't want to do is sometimes refer to her as your biological mother and then other times say your birth mom, only because kids can kind of get lost in that language. Sometimes we can hang with that as adults because we've got capacity for that. But the very virtue of attaching a title and a role for each of these 
caregivers, whether current or previous in the life of this child, is infinitely important. So we're going to label that. We're going to put, you know, Susie, biological mother. Then if we can find a picture of daddy, we're going to find a picture of that child's biological father and do the exact same thing. If we can find out, you know, what state they live in, maybe we go to Google and print out a state um, outline of the state of California or Nebraska, wherever they're from, and we're going to put that on there. This is where I was born. I was born in Nebraska. Basically, what you're doing little by little is you're adding to the life book as you go, and that gives you a venue, so to speak, through which to disseminate all of this information that you are gathering. So again, are we maybe going to show the mugshot to the four-year-old? No. Could we maybe throw the mugshot in a file and show the 10-year-old and add that to the life book? Sure. I mean, if that's the only picture that we have, then that's the picture we have. But we just cannot discount enough how often these children are thinking about their birth family. It's, It's interesting, you know, Going in when I used to do direct therapy, and I my entire scope of practice is only with this adoption and foster care population, I was curious how often these adopted children or children that are in care think about their birth parents. And so I started asking them, but I'll ask you first, how often would you say that a child, whether in care or a child that's been adopted, thinks about their biological family? You know, I would assume just you know, from the way they talk, it would probably be at least weekly or monthly, but it's probably more common than that just from our experience. But just, you know, the way the kids talk, I would say probably at least weekly. Yeah. So great guess. And that's certainly what I would have thought as well. Turns out across the board, literally every child that has ever sat in my office on the couch across from me has given me the exact same answer. And that's that they think about their biological family every day. And what's hard about that is that we as a foster parent or we as the adoptive parent don't typically think about their biological family every day, right? We just kind of get into this rhythm of life and we're meeting needs and we're making dinner and throwing pancakes at them for breakfast and we're just meeting needs and loving and leading and discipling and teaching and training and so incredibly encompassed in just providing for and raising this child that they don't often pop into our mind. Maybe Mother's Day, we might think about their biological parent, maybe Father's Day, maybe their birthday, holidays, things like that. They may come to mind and that's great. But again, we have to remove our own lens through which we are looking at the situation and really try to understand the lens through which your child is viewing this situation because by and large, those are wholly different perspectives and perceptions of what's happening. Now in your experience, are these kids usually willing to talk to, to adoptive families or foster families about their, the way that they see their, their bio family? Do they have, are they willing to have that conversation or is that something that they tend to hide in and keep under wraps? That's a great question. Um, The answer is no. So by and large, we do not see children coming up to their adoptive parents, for example, saying things like, I'm feeling a little dysregulated today. I just, you know, had a dream about my biological father last night, and I would like to discuss it with you over tea this morning. Um, They're not coming (laughs) to us. (laughs) And so again, a part of our responsibility and role is to number one, acknowledge and understand they are thinking about their family. They are considering and 
almost consumed at certain points of development with their biological family, it is on us to come towards them. So instead of saying things like, hey man, remember, if you ever have any questions about your biological family, you know, I'm here, I'll happily discuss it with you. That's well-intentioned, but it's really just putting the onus on this very vulnerable child, again, to have the courage capacity, maturity, and ability to step towards you and initiate that conversation. So what we want to do instead is change the language a little bit and say things like, hey man, I was thinking about your biological father the other day. You know, like as you know, I've never met him, but wow, I just really wish that he could know how incredible you did in math this year. You know, or oh wow, the way that you are doing so well on your baseball team this year. I just think that's incredible. I wonder, you know, what he would think about that. Just open up the discussion from a more empowering and intentional way. Yeah, that's something that we've been experiencing as well. Um, you know, and I love to be a little bit selfish here and, and just get good advice for us, but you know, hopefully selflessly it will serve some other people to hear it, you know, but we, we have a, a couple of kids who are, are their biological siblings and they came into care through, through the foster care system. And, you know, dad's no longer with us. Um, so we can't have any connection there. And actually we had a pretty close connection with his, um, with his, their dad's mother, um, grandma was, was involved quite a bit. And then when they lost her a couple of years ago, she passed away from lupus. But, um, you know, they, they've been interested in, in being able to, to meet with their mom. And part of the problem is, is that from what I know about mom and what I know about from people who know mom, um, the issue is, is that she's got an addiction problem. And, you know, we all know exactly what, what addicts bring when, they, when they're in full-blown addiction. And that tends to be things like dealers and they bring guns. And so the matter of trying to figure out how to keep kids safe in those and still figure out how to let them have some level of connection that's safe and appropriate, I'm not certain that that's a paradigm that we've figured out how to walk properly. Actually, I'll be honest, we don't know. <laughs> We're clueless on how to handle that properly. And I don't want to handle that the wrong way because obviously there's danger. We don't want to throw our kids into the middle of danger, but at the same time, we don't want to run the danger of of keeping that that to that connection so far away from them that they run towards it full blast later on and put themselves right into that danger as they they step out into those older teen years. So how do you walk that navigation for these kids? Yeah. Okay. Next question. No, just kidding. I was going to try to hop over that. (laughs) I'll tackle it. Yeah. No, that's exactly the situation that so many of us find ourselves in, whether we're fostering, whether we've adopted a child in whatever way it is, it is those cases where mom or dad just still are not safe. So how do we navigate that? How do we manage that? There are certainly still ways to do it. There are still ways to engage in that relationship, but it's just going to shift slightly depending on clearly, you know, what's mom's current baseline level of functioning and what she got going on. Um, In your example specifically, you know, we can look at things like getting a PO box and writing letters to mom. Could you include a photograph, you know, of the child periodically in that letter? Okay. Would that potentially encourage mom to maybe reciprocate that and do the same thing? Yes. And the great thing about letter writing and with a PO box clearly is number one, it remains somewhat anonymous and safe. 
Second to that, though, is that you as the parent and in the position of parental authority have the ability to screen any type of contact coming in. So is mom likely to sit down and write a letter while she's high? Probably not. Um, Does mom likely have periods of lucidity where she can sit and communicate and write a short little note? Absolutely, yes. And again, for best interests of this child, especially as they get older into young adulthood, infinitely, infinitely valuable. Overall, what I would encourage you to have as your greater goal is to get mom on your same team, get dad on your same team. You know, if we should all be team, insert child's name here, you know, team Timmy, team Jake, whoever it is that we are providing care for, we want to wrap around and roll in those biological parents because Come 16, 17, 18 years old, when you send your adopted child to their room for, you know, taking the car without asking or, you know, not doing what you told them to do and you've taken the car keys away or whatever it is, when they get on social media and they reach out to their biological parent or their biological family, which they will do, this is just the times that we are living in. And they say things like, I don't want to live here anymore. They don't love me. They hate me. I want to move back with you. We want moms, biological moms, first phone call to be to you. And the only way we get that to happen is if we are intentionally in relationship with her, with the biological father, whoever it is, we need to all be on the same team for this child's best interest. We want her to call you and say, hey, you know, I don't know what's going on. Timmy just messaged me. He wants me to pick him up from work at Chick-fil-A today after his shift. You know, I just wanted you to know that he reached out to me. That's the scenario that we want. And that should be our greater goal. It's not about excusing biological parents' past behavior because there are very real consequences to sin. There are very real consequences to, you know, choosing whatever it was that provoked and prompted this child to come into care in the first place. So it's not about excusing the behavior. It's about finding a way to work relationally within that towards the best of this child. And that is the critical part. And I will say this too, just as the, in the way that our children relate to their own story is going back to this life book idea and, you know, practical action step is do remember that this book needs to live in their bedroom. This isn't a book that like gets placed on the fancy bookshelf in the living room or gets put away in a closet. This is a book that they constantly have access to whenever they want to, because as much value as there is in you guys sitting together and constructing this life book, they need to have the ability to go into their room, close the door, look at it and have their own emotions and have their own feelings about what's contained in there without you guys sitting right next to them. Are there moments where y'all look at it together and you talk about it? Absolutely, yes. Are there moments where they're allowed to do that on their own? Absolutely, yes. It sounds like we probably have some work to do. (laughs) We all do. We all do. Don't let that worry you. (laughs) But keep your eye on the goal would be my point. Because again, you know, certainly as valuable as this child is and as much as we want to pour into them and speak life into them and we want the best for them, it is honoring to the Lord that we equally understand the value and worth of these biological parents. Certainly with Lifeline, we've got 
a variety of ministry arms, but one of them is a program called Families Count, which is a six-week biblically-based parenting class that meets state standards for DHR or DCFS or whatever it is that, you know, is called in different states, have different names, but essentially it meets that parenting requirement for these biological mamas and daddies to be able to work towards reunification. Clearly, we love that. That is the goal. That is our heart's cry when we engage in foster care is that we want these children to be reunified with their biological family of origin. It's healthy. It's redeeming. It's beautiful. It's as it should be. Does it work all the time? Clearly, no. But through Families Count, Lifeline has basically inverted that secular, typical parenting class model where parents show up, get the information, check the box, and move on. We, a few years ago, Families Count's been running about six, seven, eight years now across the nation. We actually operate in 14 different states. But when we started looking at the data and the recidivism rate, especially of kids that had been reunified to their biological parents and bounced back into care, once we looked through that with a very critical lens of, okay, let's break this down. Where is the deficit? It really comes down to a biological parent's lack of a healthy and stable support system. You know, they are clearly experiencing innumerable stressors, whether that be addiction, whether that be financial stressors, whether that be homelessness, a hundred different varieties, right, of things that have come at them or circumstantially that they have wandered into. So the ability to come alongside of them and holistically wrap them around with services that include a mentor, transportation, childcare during meetings. We feed them a full home-cooked dinner every class, and it is a beautiful thing to watch two parents or one parent, as the case may be, sit across from their table and share a meal with their child, which a lot of the times, as we know, could very well be the first time that they've ever done that. And the child goes off, you know, into whatever activity they have, and mama or daddy come into the class. And the beautiful thing about Families Count, it, it, is, from, it is from the local church. It is put on by the local church. Lifeline equips and trains the staff there to teach and implement Families Count, but that's a beautiful picture of how the church can meet the need for the vulnerable families in their community. And we have found the eff efficacy rate of Families Count exceedingly high. Um, so it's, it's a good thing. And again, we got to keep our eye on the fact that this whole system, so to speak, and all of the brokenness does not begin, nor does it end with the child in front of us. You know, I, I troll a lot of social media looking for different things, trying to educate myself and finding places where where there are people with stories to tell. And and one of the places I look is, is a particular page on Facebook that's all about, it's mostly people who are former foster and former adoptive youth. And I see so much hate and vitriol in there. And a lot of times aimed directly at either adoptive parents or or foster parents. And sometimes it's because of some absolutely horrible abuse that occurred. And if you listen back a few episodes to um, um, what was it? Surviving abuse in and out of foster care with Heather. I think the, the lady's name was like her story was, I mean, this girl went through some horrible stuff. And so I can see that happening. I can see you being really angry and, and having some vitriol there, but even people who, who went through fairly normal foster care situations seem to have a lot of hate and vitriol towards that. In a lot of cases, and I think that what you guys are doing is 
allowing a space to create that healing before that that disruption occurs in places that we hadn't even thought about it because honestly would would you have ever thought about that amanda you know the the struggles that come out of that no not especially not in the beginning of our journey you know as we've come through our journey we you know obviously we learn more and more you know what to do what not to do and and things like that but in the beginning no that was you know, definitely not something that I would have even considered. You know, it was just, hey, we've got these kids. We're going to give them some love. We're going to play and, you know, we're going to do our thing. And wherever it turns out, that's kind of where it turns out, you know, but it, it took a little while before, you know, we really started looking into trauma and trying to figure that out for our children and it's been so important to figure that out for our children and they deserve that, you know, and, and the one thing that um, I was going to bring up from earlier is the other thing that I've, that I've found walking through things with our children is we can't expect them to come to us and be like, I want to talk about bio mom and dad, you know, that puts them in a very awkward position for our children you know, and, and they may feel like we don't want to talk about it or it's going to hurt our feelings. Or, you know, it's going to make mom sad. And, you know, I, I can't talk about my my first mom with her, you know. And so I all the suggestions that you gave, I think, are just really awesome to open up that dialect with our children because they deserve that. Absolutely. So. How did you how did you get into that? Just through through working with Lifeline, or is that something that uh, that you found a need for on your own? Well, Families Count specifically is a Lifeline initiative that was started way before me um, by people much smarter than I am. Um, but it's just been extraordinarily successful. One of the main tasks that I am charged with in Central Alabama is actually implementing Families Count in churches across this area, and that's incredibly valuable. But on a bigger scope. Certainly through my adoption journey, as well as my journey in being a foster parent, is that you really do start to realize that our eyes have got to shift slightly towards understanding the fundamental and foundational reasons that these kids are either coming into care or conversely internationally ending up in institutions. Um, one of my 16-year-old children that were adopted from China has a cleft lip and cleft palate. So he was adopted for the sake of a 250 US dollar surgery. And I say that to say, had there been some support structure in place for his birth family, had there been some type of ministry that was connected to his family, potentially this is a child that never would have ended up in an orphanage. Um, certainly each country, if we look across the world, has its own reasons why kids are typically institutionalized. You know, in Africa, for example, overwhelmingly, it's either poverty or HIV and AIDS. Um, when we look at China, overwhelmingly, it's because these children have significant medical needs. China's medical system, which I won't go into, um, just wholly differs from America's system, requires a, mainly payment up front before any services are rendered, which is all well and good until you have a child, a baby that's born, who has a significant need, and 
where are you going to pull $25,000 out of your pocket from? You know, it just doesn't work like that. So a lot of these children's are, children are actually abandoned, not because they're unwanted or unloved, but because these parents know that if they abandon them, they will be picked up by the orphanage and maybe just maybe the orphanage will fund whatever surgery it is that this child needs. That was the case for two of my three. Again, the third one, um, they certainly gave it an effort, but he was considered inoperable. But for one of mine, I think I'm almost... I don't know if haunted is too strong of a word, but it does. The more I learn and the more I grow, certainly both as a practitioner and as a parent, you really start to understand the importance of putting focus, pouring love into, pouring resources into these biological families. Children were designed to be with their biological mother and biological father. Apart from sin entering this world, I should not be mothering three other people's children. Apart from sin entering this world, I should never have my phone ring a few times a week at 1 a.m., at 3 a.m. from our local foster care agency asking me to open up my home to somebody else's child. I'm happy to do it. It's redeeming. It's honoring to the Lord. But it is a result of some significant brokenness. You know, it's kind of like when I was in grad school, they, they talk a lot about micro social work versus macro social work. That micro being the direct person-to-person client interaction, you know, the macro being more community change or wide scope or wide lens practice. And I'll never forget as I sat there class after class and, you know, heard this, I was like, oh, micro all the way. Give me one person in front of me that needs a home or, you know, needs some help and I'm there, I'm all in. Macro social work, no, no, you know, no interest in that. But I think the more time that you spend in this field and the more conversations you have, you really, really do start to realize that the ball game is fixing the foundation. If we really want to stem the tide of addiction, of abuse, of neglect, of homelessness, of whatever it is, we've got to start at the root of it because just trying to keep up with what's in front of us, though needed and necessary and valuable, isn't ever really going to provoke lasting, sustainable change in our communities. And it's been interesting. I have completely shifted focus um, with my practice, just in certainly with my own personal engagement and excitement, really, to sort of plug in and start to understand how do we fix the system in itself. You haven't got it figured out how to fix it yet? <laughs> Almost there, man. Give me a couple more days. I'll I'll shoot you an email with all of the solutions. Yes, please do. <laughs> <laughs> but well, I think you know, certainly programs like Families Count do just that, right? Where we're looking, what is, where does the brokenness begin? And it begins with the biological family of origin. So let's let's put some attention there. Well, and it goes back generation after generation after generation, you know, and breaking that chain and giving That's exactly the, tool, it. the tools to be able to do that. Absolutely. Can generational legacies be broken? Yes. Can generational addiction be broken? Yes. Can generational poverty be interrupted? Absolutely. Yes. But that change requires a change agent and that change agent can either be a person or it can be a circumstance. 
but let's all realize that and let's empower and equip these bio mamas and bio daddies to be that change agent in their family because God bless them. A lot of the times they're coming from their own trauma and trauma, as we know, bounces off of trauma. Dysregulation loves chaos. They reciprocate one another. And so these parents even are caught in this cycle and in this web of confusion and addiction and complacency and brokenness and addiction and whatever it is. So let's, let's really come alongside of them because not only are we going to help the totality of that family unit, but we're helping that kid that's sleeping in the room next door for sure. Well, you've given us just a ton of great actionable information for, for uh, parents and adoptive parents. And, but you haven't talked a whole lot about your foster journey. Is there one particular foster situation that you had a kid who came in who really inspired you when you watched them walk through their, their, uh, their time in your home. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that. I think we all have our stories and, you know, we all have those kids that just sort of will stick with us forever. For me, when I originally was licensed to become a foster parent, I said, okay, birth to three years old and medical needs like that, that will be my demographic, which now is laughable. Um, (laughs) I think a lot of people come into foster care with exactly that same, you know, parameters that we so boldly give the department as far as this is what will be acceptable to me. So my first phone call was a 12-year-old girl who had been internationally adopted and that adoption unfortunately disrupted and she was now in foster care, did not speak a word of English, 12 years old, I have a house full of boys, and you know, you just, you say yes, she's, again, worthy, and yes, I didn't know what on earth I was doing, but um, here we are, quite a few years later, she is 16 now, she's a sophomore in high school, and her and I still have a very close relationship, she is in now a pre-adoptive home, which we are hopeful for good things for her. Um, But yeah, that birth to three turned out to be a 12-year-old, non-English speaking adolescent girl. (laughs) Hopefully she speaks a little bit more English now so that she can communicate better. She does. She does. It's very funny. She calls me Miss Sonia. Miss Sonia, no, 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 Miss Sonia. Um, So yeah, we still, we joke and have a great time together. I think she will always be a part of my life and I certainly for hers as well. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, you know, we've, we've kind of gone all across the board here today and I know that we are almost out of time here shortly. So I wanted to to just throw it out to you. Is there something that you wanted to, to really be sure that you got across to the audience, something that that could, could really, um, that, that set your soul on fire? Yeah, I I think I would just say never negate or diminish the effect that you are having on the life of this child. You're not going to feel it day to day. You're not going to realize the impact you're having in the midst of diaper changes or lunchboxes or eighth grade homework um, in the middle of discipline and having the same conversation about putting your clothes in the basket over and over and over again. You are not imprinting or understanding the legacy that you are leaving and the impact that you are having on that one life. Um, so I say that to encourage you in your walk. I encourage you in your journey. Sometimes, you know, in those difficult moments, it can be helpful to sort of picture that child as a 35 year old young woman, you know, or a 42 year old man, give yourself some perspective that your day to day actions and engagements are really making a difference and hang on to that. 
I love that because <laughs> God knows we've had to uh, we've had to have some of those thoughts in our own head to to walk through some of the struggles we've had. So yeah. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom with the audience here today because I mean, it seems like you have a platform to share that there in Central Alabama, but we'd love to be able to take that information and take it across the nation. And to be fair. I know a few Al- Alaba- Alabamians. Al- yeah. However you say it. I don't know. I know a few folks from Alabama and you don't sound like you're from Alabama. <laughs> well, I was a military kid, so I guess I'm kind of from everywhere. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm hard to pick up the accent, but you know, I ain't, I ain't quite there yet. Nope. That was English. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, to all my Alabama friends, we love you and your accent. And they tell me I have an accent from the Midwest. So it's all good. <laughs> but no, we, we really do appreciate you taking some time out of your, your schedule to come in here and talk to us today uh, about this topic that I think needs a lot of conversation around it because there's so many young kids who are adopted by people who are well-meaning who don't necessarily get that part right about understanding how to approach the, especially the bio family and, and work the kid, help the kids work through that. And it doesn't always work out just to take a kid to a therapist somewhere. It doesn't always work out. And there's so many things that we can do as, as a foster or an adoptive family, or even as a mentor or a friend to somebody who has a kid in that situation, where we can really just help them walk through that and then become that successful 35-year-old woman or 42-year-old man whose life story has changed. You know? And when you just, if you just Google the phrase, celebrities from foster care, the number of people who show up who've made it, who've gotten somewhere in their life, who's no longer struggling in that place in their head. It's amazing how many people have gone so far. But then realistically in life, you meet so many people who, who have stuck in that trauma. So if we can help just one family work through that trauma and become something bigger, something better, who God meant them to be, that would be amazing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when Jesus walked this earth, he you know, invested and engaged with his 12. And even of those 12, he focused intentionally on two, three of his disciples. So even biblically, right, we understand that there is value and there is worth from make a difference to one, make a difference to two. You don't have to fix the world. You don't have to fix the whole system, but don't, don't misunderstand your role and your impact. Well, thank you so much for your time on here today. Um, and we will, we will talk with you soon, hopefully when we, uh, we get this all put together and ready to put out there and we'll have all of your links down in the show notes so people can come and find you. Um, I don't know, are you on social media out there where you, you have a presence there for people to find you at? Yeah, you can pretty much check out Lifeline at lifelinechild.org and find out all about all the different areas of ministry we're engaged in. Wonderful, wonderful. So yeah, we'll make sure we get all that linked up so that if you're listening to this on, if you're on Apple Podcasts, I'm just going to go ahead and tell anybody who's listening there, for whatever reason, all the links get kind of weird, a little wonky sometimes. So if you just go to the Facebook, or no, I'm sorry, not the Facebook, <laughs> go to the website at fosterCareNation.com and you'll be able to find the episode there and all the links will be in there for certain if you can't get to it on the, on the Apple Podcast. Uh, show notes, but usually you can find it on the, uh, on all the other platforms. They don't give me as much craziness. So, so yeah, just check out their website over there and, and see if they're in your area. Cause it sounds like they offer a lot of value to people who need it. Absolutely. Happy to help. Thank right. you so much. Have a great day.